I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This episode of the China Power Podcast is part one of a special two-part podcast on China and space. Today's episode will explore China's military capabilities and ambitions in space. Part two will examine China's civilian space activities and interests. When people hear the term space race, many think of the Cold War era strategic competition between the United States and the Soviet Union to advance spaceflight. But these days, an increasing number of people would think about China as a major player, maybe even a competitor, in a new modern-day competition in space focused on building up military capabilities. The CSIS Aerospace Security Project's April report, titled Space Threat Assessment 2019, investigates China's increasing investment in counter-space capabilities. How is China currently using its military capabilities in space? And what is the impact of China becoming a global space power? To answer these questions and share more from the Space Threat Assessment Report, I'm joined by my two colleagues, Todd Harrison and Caitlin Johnson. Todd is director of the Aerospace Security Project, director of the Defense Budget Analysis Program, and a senior fellow with the International Security Program at CSIS. Caitlin is also with the CSIS Aerospace Security Project, serving as associate director and an associate fellow. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, Todd, let's start、uh, by talking about China's 2019 defense white paper, which was just released in July. It characterized outer space as a quote critical domain in international strategic competition, and it said again quote. Outer space security provides strategic assurance for national and social development. How does space fit into China's military doctrine and strategy? Yeah, I think the 2019 white paper really represents more continuity than change when it comes to space policy and doctrine for China. China, you know, has recognized the great military and economic advantages space has provided the United States. They also recognize that the U.S. military has become so reliant on its space systems that it represents a vulnerability, and the United States military has not really taken that vulnerability very seriously for a while.、Uh, and so, China has, you know, recognized that if you want to defeat the U.S. military, or if you want to deter the U.S. military from involvement in a conflict, one of the best ways might be to show the U.S. that there's. Space assets can be held at risk, and so we've seen China develop a number of different types of counter space weapon systems designed exactly to do that. We've also seen China reorganize its military really to elevate space. They've created、uh, the Strategic Support Force within the PLA, and you know the Strategic Support Force is where they house their space forces、uh, as well as many of their counter space forces. And they also include、uh, electronic and cyber forces in there as well. I think that's actually notable that they group together space, cyber, and electronic warfare together in this one military organization. I think it shows that they view the space domain primarily as an information domain, as satellites are a way that you collect information, a way that you distribute information to your forces. That's really the way that they view it, and they view the ability to disrupt someone else's space capabilities as a way to break the sense. 
shooter kill chain, which, you know, the United States is, you know, heavily relying on for power projection forces. So I think we see a lot of interesting developments coming out of China when it comes to military space activities. What specifically are the Chinese doing in the area of counter space weapons? And is this the area of most concern to you? Yeah. So in terms of counter space weapons, China is doing a lot across the board. There are four basic types of counter space weapons that you can categorize them into. And we see some activity in each of those areas. So one are the kinetic physical forms of attack. Uh, these are things like direct ascent ASAT weapons. That's a missile that's launched from Earth, goes up hits a satellite in space, blows it up. We saw China successfully test one of these for the first time in 2007, produced a huge amount of orbital debris in low Earth orbit. Uh, much of that debris is still in low Earth orbit today, threatening other satellites like the International Space Station. That's not the only type of kinetic weapon in space. You could also have co-orbital ASAT weapons. That's basically another satellite that's placed into space, uh, and then you can maneuver it to intercept the path of another satellite. So when most people think of space weapons, they're thinking of kinetic-type weapons, but that's just one type, and, and China definitely has those capabilities and has been developing those over the years. There are also non-kinetic forms of physical attack in space. That's where you cause physical damage to a satellite, but without actually touching it. So an example of this would be a laser that can be used to blind the sensors on a satellite. Uh, so it could cause permanent damage to those sensors, completely blind them, but you've never actually touched it. Uh, you can also have high-power microwave weapons uh, that can basically fry the circuits on a satellite and cause processors to reset or be permanently damaged. And then there are other forms of attack uh, that aren't physical in nature at all. Uh, electronic forms of attack, like jamming the signals going to and from a satellite. Uh, every satellite, you've got to communicate with it somehow. If you can jam those signals, uh, then that could render the satellite effectively useless to you. Jamming, though, is interesting because it's a reversible form of attack. You can turn the jammer off, you lose access to your satellite, and then when they turn the jammer off again, then you regain access to it. There's also spoofing, where you can mimic the signal from a satellite and basically fool a receiver into thinking they're getting the real signal from the satellite. So an example of that is you can spoof the GPS signal. So the signal coming down from the GPS satellites, you can have a different signal that you produce that can confuse a GPS receiver into thinking like, oh, your fake signal is actually a real signal. And then when your GPS receiver tries to calculate its position based on all these signals, it'll come up with the wrong position. Uh, that's been demonstrated. It's out in the open literature uh, how to do that. And, you know, China certainly has those capabilities. The fourth form of counterspace weapons uh, is cyber attack because space systems obviously uh, have, you know, electronic systems in their data that's flowing through them. Uh, and so you can use a cyber attack to go after the ground stations that control the satellites, to go after the user equipment that's using the satellite, or even try to infect the satellite itself through a ground station. Uh, so there are all forms of cyber attacks that we've seen, and we've seen China demonstrate some of these capabilities in the past. Caitlin, could you talk a little bit about where China's capabilities in space are ahead of the United States or narrowing the gap? Where are the areas that, that China might actually gain advantage in the future? 
Sure. So space operations are often viewed as a, a key component of the PLA and, and China's military strategy. And they've been significantly investing and in building out new strategic space capabilities for a while. Currently, the PLA is most focused on building out its ISR capabilities or intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance satellite systems, as well as satellite communication systems and nav its own navigation system. ISR capabilities are a main focus for China because of the incredible advantage they, they give a country being able to um, look and listen and view the earth below. You can imagine at CSIS even we use commercial satellite images to conduct our own analysis of you know island building in the South China Sea or North Korean missile launch tests. And so you can you can imagine why a country would also want these capabilities. And China is definitely looking to do the same thing, using imaging satellites to improve their own situational awareness, intelligence collecting, and analysis. Uh, a related type of, of ISR is not just looking down at the Earth, but looking up at satellites. And so we call this space situational awareness. And it's certainly a capability that China is investing in and trying to build out further. It allows a country to track and monitor satellites that orbit not only over their territory, but can, can divest the system to monitor all satellites orbiting around the globe. And you can imagine that this would allow China to be able to track not just U.S., but other countries' uh, classified satellites. So the satellites that you know we have orbiting above us doing sneaky things, having uh, the capability to track them, um, know where they're either moving or where they're in orbit, can give a lot of information to what that satellite might be doing and improve their own intelligence capabilities as well. Lastly, I think one of the most notable developments that, that China has been investing a lot in recently is their Baidu satellite system. It is a 27 satellite constellation that's basically China's version of the GPS. So the United States has obviously benefited greatly from the GPS system, both civilian, you know, your Uber app on your phone runs off GPS or Google Maps, but also in military being able to improve targeting, developing systems like precision guided munitions, as well as giving navigation for, for drones or other unmanned vehicles. And as technology is inc increasingly becoming unmanned, these systems are really significant. So China is investing a lot of, of effort in building out its own navigation system, so it's not reliant on any other country um, besides the U.S. GPS system, Russia, the Europeans, and um, Japan all have similar systems. So you can see why, why China would want to have that kind of independence and not be reliant on anyone else. Uniquely, they're also using Baidu as kind of a carrot in diplomatic situations. We've seen them make agreements with countries, not only their Asian neighbors, but also a lot of African countries, giving them access to Baidu as part of negotiations for trade or other kind of statecraft. And so this is a really interesting use of their satellite system as well, is being able to you know use in their toolkit for other means, not just providing the basic GPS kind of system. Todd, you already talked a little bit about how China might use its military space capabilities. I wonder if you could distinguish a little bit between what they're doing in peacetime, what their capabilities are potentially in, in a conflict. 
Yeah. I mean, I think an important distinction to make is between the the type of civil and commercial space capabilities China is developing and the overtly military capabilities. And there are there's a big gray area there as well where we don't have a lot of visibility and what is you know what really falls into which category but when we see china putting up a space station that's really for science and exploration when you see china putting a lunar lander on the far side of the moon that's really about science and exploration there are you know few military applications that can come from those types of missions, if any at all. Those are not threatening in any way. Uh, that's where China is just doing what great powers do, which is fun, you know, breaking, you know, leading edge science and exploration. And so, you know, that is, is one set of activities. But then we do also see China doing things in the military space realm, you know, where it could be both dual, you know, civilian and military, like Baidu. You know, hey, we have the GPS system. We use it for civilian purposes. We also use it for military purposes. China is doing the same with Baidu. You know, that has a military signal on it that's just for their military users. You know, I don't know that there's necessarily anything threatening about that, but that is certainly a military space system. We see China also uh, building and launching a lot of uh, intelligence collection satellites for reconnaissance and signals intelligence. The United States has the same types of systems. Uh, so it's not surprising that China would want to build out those capabilities of its own, especially as China wants to create the uh, military capability to be able to operate further and further from its homeland. It's going to need space systems to give it that over-the-horizon reach so they can see and sense what's there and communicate with forces at greater ranges. So in many ways, they are just now starting to build out the types of space systems that the U.S. military has had for decades. Now, you know, with that, you know, they are also building out robust counter space capabilities. And so that's where I think we should be a little more concerned uh, that not only are they building out, you know, space capabilities that they can use for their own forces in peacetime or in conflict, they're building counter space capabilities they could use to deny us the ability to use space in a conflict. And so I think that's where, you know, we're really concerned about some of the developments we see happening in China. I wanted to shift a little bit to talk about the potential for arms control negotiations that, of course, would likely be multilateral, not just between the United States and China. What you see is the prospects for those kind of negotiations and whether there might be certain space capabilities that could be taken off the table that would lead to greater strategic stability. There have been a lot of a lot of back and forth with the United States, Russia, China, European countries, India, and others, mainly through the United Nations, you know, in various different forms talking about how we could ban space weapons of different types. The problem is, number one, how do you define a space weapon? Not everyone agrees on how to do that. And, you know, even if you did, how can you verify uh, that other countries uh, are complying with the agreement? I think, you know, the number one thing that the United States could do vis-a-vis -vis China and Russia, which are the other main powers in space, uh, is start to establish norms of behavior, things that you do and that you don't do. Uh, and the important thing about establishing norms is you've got to communicate them and you've got to abide by them yourself. And so I think that could be a good first step. That's something we can do unilaterally is say, these are the norms. This is, this is how close uh, you can get to another 
another satellite without their permission. This is, you know, when you can do destructive ASAT testing, which should probably be never. And if you're going to do it, this is, you know, a more acceptable way of doing it. These are the types of standards that that we could start to communicate and start to follow ourselves and start to bring other allies and partners on board. And the important thing about norms is not that it would stop China or stop Russia uh, from doing bad things in space. What it would do is it would give us a benchmark from which we could compare to say, okay, what they're doing is abnormal. You can't call something abnormal or hostile or an act of war if no one has ever set the standard for what normal, you know, acceptable behavior is. And that's kind of where we are at space today. It's kind of the Wild West, that there aren't norms, there aren't, you know, commonly accepted behaviors uh, that we should see. And so it's difficult. Like we've seen this Chinese satellite called SC-17. It's going around geostationary belt and it's doing some kind of unusual things. They're apparently practicing remote proximity operations with other Chinese satellites. Is that a threat? Is it abnormal? Normal? Well, maybe not. Maybe they're just developing this technology to be able to do on-orbit servicing of satellites. We have U.S. private companies that are doing similar things. Uh, there are British companies that have been doing similar things in space. The problem is that we, we don't have clearly accepted norms for those types of activities, so we can't pinpoint and say what is it that makes you know, what China is doing suspicious or not. Uh, and so I think that would be really beneficial. The other thing that I would hope that we could one day get China and Russia to agree to, because they do have significant assets in space, uh, is just to agree to not do destructive ASAT testing in space. Just don't test that way. We all know that all three countries have the capability, and in a time of conflict, we could choose to use them. I hope we wouldn't. But let's at least not do that testing because just the act of testing produces a tremendous amount of debris that lingers in space for a long time. Just to come back to that 2007 ASAT test, that test alone, that Chinese test, increased the amount of trackable space debris by 10% in space. So in the entire globe, they increase the amount of trash in space that we can detect by about 10%. That's just the stuff we can detect. If a country were to keep testing like that, you can see how this would grow and become a real problem. And so I think that's something that maybe we can all agree to a test moratorium. Caitlin, in the report, you wrote about Russia, Iran, and North Korea, as well as uh, China. So could you talk a little bit about the convergences between these space programs and their doctrines, how they think about using space? Is it similar? Are there differences? Their doctrine and, and why they pursue space is pretty similar. There are reasons for national prestige and to protect their own nation, to create more security and, and be able to use space. They've seen, again, the advantages that space has given other nations um, like the United States and want it for themselves, rightly so. And they're all investing in both space systems and counter space systems. However, the disparity between the four countries is pretty large. China and Russia are at a much different, higher level of technology advancement um, and, and building and, and research than Iran and North Korea. Iran and North Korea don't have even a, a consistent launch vehicle to just get their satellites off the ground, literally. So that's a lot of their focus right now, which is heavily tied to their missile systems and their missile development because it's a very similar uh, technology. Russia and China are putting 
you know, dozens of satellites into space every year and building out their intelligence gathering tools and, you know, higher end counter space weapons. However, we do see them all investing in kind of this easier access, lower threshold counter space weapons that are often reversible, like Todd said, which um, include jamming technologies and, and cyber technologies. Those are probably kind of the easiest uh, technologies to start with and can have great effect. They're reversible. And we've seen them tested from from almost all four countries. As we all know, North Korea and Iran both have highly capable cyber capabilities. So do Russia and China. They've all displayed this across the board. And so why not turn those capabilities that they already have to space? And as well as, as to continue to develop these kind of lower threshold, reversible counter space systems that could be used in areas of, of not outright conflict, like these gray zone areas. Um, we've seen Russia use jamming technology in Ukraine. We've seen China put jamming technology in the South China Sea. So they're definitely all kind of looking at space as another piece of the pie. Todd, one of the uh, challenges that I think we face in the United States interaction with China on issues relating to space is the fact that their military and civilian programs are just completely fused, very different than what we have in the United States. And so in 2011, the Wolf Amendment was passed by Congress and that uh, forbade NASA uh, from really doing any kind of research and cooperation with China's National Space Administration. So I, I, I wonder what your take is on the fact that the U.S. and, and, and China really are so severely limited in any potential cooperation. Would there be potential benefits to working with China, even in the environment, of course, in which we have growing strategic co-op competition between our, our two countries? Or do you think that this is the right approach, that the United States just completely bar really any kind of interaction between our scientists or cooperation of any kind in space? Well, you know, the, the politics behind the Wolf Amendment are complex. Part of it was about national security. Part of it was also had nothing to do with national security or space. Part of it also was retaliation for the treatment of minority groups, particularly Christians, in China. And so, you know, there's, there's an interesting history behind the Wolf Amendment. I would say this, that if the intent was to prevent or delay China's uh, increasing development of military space capabilities, it has been a complete failure. <laughs> it has not slowed China down one bit. If the intent was to slow down China's civil space program for science and exploration, it has also been a complete failure. Uh, China has made all kinds of progress since 2011, including you know recently landing the lunar rover uh, on the moon. So you know I'm not sure at this point what the Wolf Amendment is really trying to accomplish and what it's preventing or delaying in terms of China's space capabilities. You know to get an idea for how cooperation with China could work, I think we could look back at U.S.-Soviet cooperation in space during the Cold War. So really from the beginning of the space age, starting back in the 1960s, um, the United States and the Soviet Union started cooperating in space. One of the first things we did is started, started sharing data, technical data from satellites, uh, just to better understand what is the space environment um, that we are starting to operate in uh, as the two superpowers. I think, you know, one of the most remarkable 
uh, feats of that cooperation was the Apollo Soyuz test project back in the 1970s, uh, where we actually had two spacecraft, a U.S. spacecraft and a Soviet spacecraft, dock in space. Uh, that required all sorts of technical uh, and political cooperation, and that was during the height of the Cold War. Uh, since then, throughout the 1990s, uh, we had joint missions to the Russian Mir space station, where U.S. astronauts and the space shuttle were going to Mir on a pretty routine basis. And then we brought Russia into the consortium of nations for the International Space Station. Some of the major modules on the space station were built and flown by Russia. And Russia remains the key partner with the United States on the International Space Station. And that partnership on the ISS has continued without pause, without hiccup, even since 2014. Even you know, with all of the deterioration in the relationship with Russia that we've had in virtually all other areas, our cooperation in space uh, has remained steady. And, you know, if you look back at the history of it, you know, cooperation with the Soviets and then the Russians, you know, the historians have written, who've written about this uh, say that it actually cooperating with the Soviets back in the Cold War gave us much better intelligence into Soviet space capabilities and Soviet intentions and space programs than we ever could have gotten through the CIA. Because when we cooperated with them, we actually had our scientists over in the Soviet Union, in their plants, in their facilities, at their launch sites, observing what was going on. And, you know, they had their scientists over in the United States doing the same thing. Uh, so it provided much more transparency and understanding of the other side. The other thing it provided during the Cold War was a channel of communication. In case something went wrong in space, our space people, even if they weren't in the military, even if they were in NASA, had direct lines of communication and personal relationships with folks on the Soviet side. So if we did see some sort of a technical glitch going on that could have been an attack or it could have just been space weather or just, you know, random things happen in space, we had a conduit uh, to be able to, to talk to someone on the other side and get a sense of what's really going on. Are they seeing something similar or does this appear to be, you know, a hostile act? With China, because we've cut off virtually all cooperation in space, we don't have those conduits, military or through civilian uh, agencies. Uh, and so I think that's one of the things that we could gain uh, by partnering with China. The other thing is China has you know, some real serious ambitions in space exploration and science. And in many areas, we match up. Uh, that we have some similar science and exploration goals and where we have mutual interest and they have significant capabilities to bring to bear, it could be good for everyone to cooperate on future missions. Now, it's, it's probably too late to bring China into the International Space Station Consortium uh, because we're already looking at when do we retire the space station. But for deep space missions to the moon and beyond, there is an opening. There is an opportunity to bring China into the, you know, the fold of space nations, spacefaring nations that want to go out and do good. Uh, for humanity and develop that science and that understanding of what's out there uh, and how can these areas be, you know, the moon and beyond be used for the benefit of people here on Earth. Are there risks associated with that? Of course, there are. You know, the first thing that comes to mind would be technology transfer risk. Well, you know, we've handled that on the International Space Station. 
We've handled it with, you know, dozens of partners there, uh, a lot of our European countries, and of course with Russia. Uh, I mean, basically the rule is we don't transfer technology. What we do is we define interfaces and all we tell uh, the other country is this is the interface you need to design to. It needs to plug in this way. You know, here are the power requirements, here's the size, the fittings, you know, uh, and we connect that way. We've been able to manage that with, you know, a huge consortium on the ISS. We could do this uh, with China and not risk uh, any technology. The other point is the technology's probably already been transferred. China is notorious <laughs> for stealing intellectual property. So if they really wanted it, they would have taken it by now. And China has pretty formidable space capabilities of its own. So they don't necessarily need to take our technology. They have a lot of their own already. So I think there are a lot of potential benefits. It's not without risk entirely, but I think that's something that we should, as a government, be looking at carefully. So you've laid out a potentially hopeful scenario in the event that things don't go in that direction and we end up with more intense competition, what are you most worried about? If you look out the next five to 10 years, what could very intense competition between the United States and China look like? What worries me most with China and space are gray zone attacks in space. And so what I mean by that is what we see China doing with gray zone operations on the earth, like island building in the South China Sea and, you know, then building a runway on the island and this creeping aggression that stays below the threshold of overt war. I worry that we're going to see some of the same types of activities in space. So, you know, for example, using counter space weapons uh, that are reversible, like jamming. Do we see increased use of jamming? We see them setting up jammers in you know, some of the islands they built in the South China Sea. What if they start turning them on? Turning them on and then turning them off. Uh, and so when they want to cause problems for us, they do, and then they turn it back off. Other forms of attack where there's limited visibility, uh, so the public can't necessarily see what's happening. So like lasing a satellite, we shoot a laser uh, into the optics of an imagery satellite. You can temporarily dazzle it if it's a low power, or you could permanently blind it if it's a higher power laser. Um, what if China starts doing that? How would we respond? You know, it's not publicly visible. No one else will know that this actually happened. We may not want to tell anyone because then we give China the battle damage assessment to know that they were successful. So if we're not telling anyone, then they can kind of get away with it. And that's a real problem. You know, they might not do this to U.S. military or intelligence satellites. They could do this to commercial satellites uh, that the U.S. government also relies upon for critical, uh, timely intelligence. And so I think that kind of creeping, low-level, reversible, low-attribution type of aggression in space could be a real problem. And I don't think we have a good toolkit yet to respond to it effectively. Well, China and space is going to be something that we're all going to be watching very, very closely, I think, in the years ahead. I want to thank you both, Todd Harrison, Caitlin Johnson from the CSIS Aerospace Security Project for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.